Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast, Getting to Better Together, sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to its elders past, present and emergent. It's to this issue of custodianship that I want to return again in this episode, or rather it's a focus on its current abuse by we contemporary human beings in our insatiable quest for growth as the indicator of progress. A couple of weeks ago, a report was issued by the IPCC which presented nothing less than a pretty bleak assessment of the impacts of climate change on the planet and on us. The data on the physical science foundations of the phenomenon They conclude uh, that unless there are immediate, rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, then there is doom and gloom all round. And yet, consumed as we seem to be by the immediate challenges of the current viral plague and with scant regard to matters beyond that, too few of us are really attending to the issue of the ever-continuing negative and destructive impacts that we're having on the world about us, our so-called environment. One could never accuse my guest this morning of such negligence. Of his many outstanding accomplishments attest, Professor Ian Lowe is one of the most distinguished scholars of matters environmental in this country, with an influence that extends way beyond these shores. For decades now, he's dedicated his life to understanding large-scale issues concerning the environment, including sustainable development, and of converting these understandings into necessary policy decisions. So what a privilege it is for me, then, to have this conversation. A very warm welcome, Ian. Uh, And uh, it's a privilege for me to talk to you, Richard, uh, given your decades of uh, uh, great scholarship in this area. My question is, many folk are unaware of the IPCC and of the work that they do. Who are they? What, What do they do and what are they currently saying about climate change? The IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, And they were established 30 years ago uh, because in 1985, an international conference in the Austrian town of Villach said that humans were measurably changing the composition of the Earth's atmosphere and adding to the quantity of so-called greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And the changes that were being observed in the climate were possibly due to this human interference in the natural climate cycle. And that conclusion led to the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, adopting a framework convention on climate change. And the UN established the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to summarise the science and report it to decision makers. And their first report said that, yes, humans were changing the composition of the atmosphere. Uh, Yes, the measurable amounts of the so-called greenhouse gases that trap heat, like carbon dioxide and methane and oxides of nitrogen, were increasing. And yes, there were observable changes in climate. It was getting warmer on average. The sea level was increasing. Rainfall patterns were changing. But it was probably too early to say with scientific precision that the changes to the climate could be attributed to the changes in atmosphere. Their second report in 1996, said that science, the consensus of the science, was that there was a credible link 
that humans were changing the atmosphere, and that led to the Kyoto Conference in 1997, agreeing that the affluent countries who had released most of the carbon dioxide that were changing the climate should uh, undertake to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide they were putting in the atmosphere. And most developed countries at Kyoto in 1997 agreed to targets to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and methane they were putting into the atmosphere. And unfortunately, Australia was a bit of a rogue state in Kyoto. Uh, we essentially said that we would only accept the Kyoto Agreement if we were given a uniquely, and I would say irresponsibly, generous target. The UN diplomat who was chairing the conference said his writing instructions were to ensure that all of the affluent countries signed up. So he said, uh, talking in careful diplomatic language, if hypothetically one country that only accounted for 1.5% of global emissions wanted an irresponsibly uh, generous target and would only uh, sign up if they were given an irresponsibly generous target, he would have felt obliged to to accede to that request. Why, why was our position um, so different from everybody else? What, what grounds were we using to argue that we should do what it is we wanted to do? Well, the uh, Australian delegation uh, sent there with its writing instructions from the recently elected Howard government uh, argued that Australia would be uniquely damaged economically if uh, we were to accept the same sort of responsible reduction targets of other countries. Uh, that was an outrageously dishonest argument because uh, uh, I had been living and working in the UK at the time of the so-called energy crisis in the 1970s. And uh, that began when the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, decided that it was unacceptable they were only getting $1.90 US a barrel for oil and demanded that they be paid more. The consumer countries briefly resisted and uh, the petroleum exporting countries turned off the tap. So there was a shortage of petroleum fuels. And uh, I saw fist fights at the Bowser in the UK as uh, service stations ran out of fuel. I gather there were gunfights in the US in their more robust political climate. Um, and eventually we agreed to pay more for oil. And uh, But one of the consequences of that energy crisis was that government authorities in the Northern Hemisphere decided that they should encourage people to use energy more efficiently. So appliance efficiency targets were set, vehicle efficiency requirements were brought in, there were subsidies offered um, in the UK to people to insulate their houses so they use less energy. And a lot of the cost-effective ways of improving the efficiency of using energy were implemented in the Northern Hemisphere countries. Because the oil crisis happened at only the only time in Australia's history that we were more or less self-sufficient with Bass Strait oil, the same shock didn't happen in Australia, and so those efficiency improvements didn't happen in Australia, and indeed they still haven't today. We are still very wasteful in our use of energy. So uh, I thought the argument was completely dishonest because not having done what uh, the Northern Hemisphere countries had done in the 1970s, we had a whole range of cost-effective ways of reducing our energy use. 
And, and the illustration that that's still true is that in 2003, a report was presented to the Howard government, the National Framework for Energy Efficiency, which said that we could reduce our emissions of carbon dioxide by 30% using cost-effective existing technology that paid for itself in less than four years. So we, we are still very wasteful. Uh, a lot of appliances on sale in Australia could not legally be sold in the European Union. Some of them could not even be sold in the USA, which hardly springs to mind as a paragon of energy efficiency. And unlike most developed countries, we don't have even fleet efficiency standards for vehicles. Uh, and again, because there has been no policy to do anything about it, the average efficiency of our vehicle fleet today is no better than it was 50 years ago. So we are still very wasteful. Why is there, why is there such hiatus between uh, politicians or policymakers and and the science, which is quite clear, and the economics, which boosts uh, the whole argument? Well, uh, with with any change, uh, there are winners and losers. Um, if you say, for example, that uh, there is a minimum standard which refrigerators have to meet, uh, those. Uh, people who are marketing efficient refrigerators will gain, and those who are marketing inefficient refrigerators will lose. And because those who are harmed by policies usually make more fuss than those who benefit, there's a, an obvious political pressure on governments to do nothing, uh, because if you do nothing, you don't antagonise people. And uh, so, uh, I mean, it, it, it doesn't just apply to energy. You see it in other areas like health, We've known since the 1960s that tobacco shortens the life of half its users, but it's taken decades to get government to uh, first stop the tobacco industry from sponsoring sporting events uh, and then to stop them advertising and then finally to bring in uh, plain packaging and uh, requirements for health warnings. But that uh, happened slowly over decades, uh, even though we knew the damage it was doing. And uh, you can see similar problems uh, with getting something done about high levels of sugar in soft drinks or um, the marketing of un unhealthy food products that uh, governments are very reluctant to intervene. Is it going to be ever thus? Well, my worry is that it is. Um, I mean, if you, you look at the issue of appliance efficiency, for example, the only reason that we have appliance efficiency labels on refrigerators and washing machines and uh, other electrical appliances is that the state governments of the two largest states, New South Wales and Victoria, got exasperated at the continuing failure of the Commonwealth to enact appliance efficiency legislation. And they passed laws in New South Wales and Victoria saying that appliances in those states uh, had to have efficiency labels. And that became a de facto national policy because from the point of view of the manufacturers and distributors, it was too difficult to have one set of appliances for New South Wales and Victoria and a different one for Queensland and South Australia. So it became a de facto national standard. But the Commonwealth Government le never legislated for appliance efficiency. One of the uh, issues there, of course, as distinct uh, from the challenges of, of climate change, is that at least it's possible to, to measure something and put a price on it. Uh, and then introduce the standard competitive mechanisms of the market. That doesn't seem to be the case um, in terms of the complexity of the issue with climate change. That's true. I mean, we can measure what we're doing to the atmosphere. The thing that's interested me is that as the science has been refined over decades, 
uh, it's gradually become clear that the scientific models were very good. I mean, I say to people, it's relatively easy to develop a theory that explains what's already happened. The real test of the validity of a scientific theory is that it makes predictions and projections which you can then test against the real world. And um, in 1987, uh, CSIRO, under the leadership of Dr. Graham Pearman, who then headed their Division of Atmospheric Science, convened a national conference, Greenhouse 87. And the basis of that conference was that CSIRO developed um, a climate change model showing what they thought would happen as the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere gradually increased. And they invited experts in different areas like agriculture, water supply, uh, energy, uh, fire management, forestry, to reflect on what the implications were for Australia. And I was recently reminding a group that uh, because there are still some people out there denying the science and saying the models have not been, uh, have not predicted what's actually happened. Back then, the models were saying that average temperatures would increase, there would be more very hot days, there'd be fewer very hot nights, there'd be changes to rainfall patterns, it would be drier in the south, particularly the southwest, and wetter in the north, particularly the northwest. There would be longer dry periods and worse droughts, there would be more severe rainfall events and worse flooding, there would be increased fire risk, there would be increasing sea levels, uh, there would be more intense cyclones and so on. And every one of those projections has been verified. What we are now seeing is exactly what the science was telling us 30 years ago to expect. And uh, gi given that, I mean, what one ground for cautious optimism is that when uh, we were faced with the coronavirus pandemic 18 months ago, uh, governments were forced to listen to scientific advice and to act to keep the community safe. And uh, generally, politicians who took the scientific advice and as a result kept their communities safe have been rewarded by their communities by being re-elected, usually with increased majorities. And if you want to be cautiously optimistic, you could say that uh, having trusted the science in the case of the coronavirus and been rewarded by the community, politicians might eventually be emboldened to trust the science of climate change. And uh, in the case of climate change, uh, I think it's fair to say they have a similar responsibility to keep the community safe because damage is being done economically, damage is being done to life and property by climate change. And uh, they have the same responsibility as they do in dealing with the pandemic to keep the community safe by adopting responsible responses, which the science has been telling them about for 30 years. Bit of a uh, left field question. What role uh, do insurance companies play in all of this? Seemingly, they could have a very loud voice. And they have had a loud voice. At Kyoto in 1997, when most of commerce was still saying, we don't think there's a problem, we don't see any need for action, the one commercial sector that was in Kyoto urging action was the insurance industry. Because they were saying, we can read the red ink on our balance sheet. And they said in 1997 at the Kyoto conference that correcting for inflation and changes in values their payouts for property damage in the 1980s were greater than the 1960s and 1970s put together. 
and their payouts for property damage in the first five years of the 1990s were greater than for all of the 1980s. So what they were saying is that in by 1995, they, their payouts for property damage discounted for inflation and changes in values of currency were about four times what they had been 20 years earlier. And they said, if these trends continue, it will be impossible to insure properties in many areas because the actuarial basis for calculating an insurance premium is working out how likely it is to pay out and uh, you know insurance companies aren't benevolent organizations they make a profit by setting premiums that mean they collect more money than they pay out and they said if we follow that basis and keep setting premiums at levels that ensure that property insurance is a profitable uh, industry, the premiums will be at a level that householders will be unable to afford. And we are now seeing that where some coastal properties uh, in Australia are basically uninsurable because the risk of damage is so high that uh, people can't afford to pay the premiums. And we saw that after the uh, the bushfires that a lot of uh, people were uninsured because the credibly calculated premium to justify the risk is at a level that people just can't afford to pay. So the irony is that it could well be commerce that is the edge of the, the change, let's say. So that where scientists have been arguing now for a very long time and you've been a loud voice in there, as have some politicians then it could well be the sort of commercial reality that people will face in terms of insurance that actually leads them to making positive changes. Yes, and that, that's happening now. And the other area where commercial reality is coming in is that when I was first arguing that we needed to uh, clean up our Energy Act so that we did less damage to the climate, there was a real financial price for, uh, for example, replacing coal-fired electricity with uh, a cleaner fuel like gas or going even further and replacing it with renewable sources like solar and wind. Uh, and even 10 years ago, that that was still the case, that uh, wind was a bit more expensive than coal and solar was three times the price of coal. But today, globally, solar and wind on a large scale are about a third the price of coal-fired electricity. And as a consequence of that, Electricity authorities that don't have a green bone in their body, that aren't at all concerned about climate change, but are concerned with being profitable, have been closing down old coal-fired power stations that have amortised their capital cost because the running cost of producing electricity from those old coal-fired power stations is higher than the cost of getting electricity from new large-scale solar farms or wind turbines. So the economics is driving a rapid transformation of the electricity industry, not just globally, but uh, also here in Australia. That uh, I recently saw some figures that uh, I think at 12.35pm a few Sundays ago, uh, renewables were supplying nearly 60% of all the electricity around the entire eastern part of Australia and it was supplying all of the electricity in South Australia, and they were exporting uh, their solar energy to Victoria to um, supplement their old brown coal power stations, which are now the least reliable part of the electricity system. There's a certain irony here too, isn't there, that people um, who have been, let's say, on the green side of things have argued for a while now that we have been victims of 
having uh, abrogated our responsibility for making decisions to commerce. And yet here we are now with commerce, for whatever reason, as you suggest, uh, now actually having an influence that one might argue is beyond that of the, the words of politicians or the facts of science. That's true. I mean, uh, the, the federal politicians have recently been trying to urge AGL to keep uh, open Liddell, their oldest coal-fired power station. Um, they, they are shutting it down not because they want to respond to climate change, but because they want to stay a profitable organisation. And uh, it's increasingly true that the old coal-fired power stations are not just worse contributors to climate change, they're also worse contributors to the profit and loss statement of the organisations that are running them. Right, yeah. Which brings us back to what the IPCC may say next. Are these the sorts of issues they're going to address? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the report that's just released is quite alarming. Uh, it says that um, we're now in the hottest period for the last 100,000 years, that the levels of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane are higher than they've been for one or two million years, that the rate of losing Arctic sea ice is the the worst for at least a thousand years, that glaciers are retreating faster than any time in the last 2,000 years, sea level is higher than it's been at any time in the last 3,000 years, the oceans are the warmest they've been since the end of the last glacial period 11,000 years ago, and extreme heat events are more frequent and uh, a more serious threat to life and limb. All of which makes a, a mockery, doesn't it, of people who are saying, oh, well, we've always had droughts in Australia, but we've always had floods, and, uh, you know, this has been one of the coldest winters we've had for a while. Cha-cha-cha. Uh, and it is true that we have always had droughts and floods in Australia. It's uh, one of the features of our climate that... Uh, described by the poet as a land of droughts and flooding rains, that uh, it is a land of extremes. But the extremes are getting worse. The problem with um, the anecdotal evidence is that the difference between the temperature today and tomorrow will be a couple of degrees. The difference between what it was last night and what it is now is 10 degrees. And with those changes in the temperature on every day, um, it's impossible for human experience to detect a one degree increase in average temperature over 100 years. Uh, similarly, the difference in high tide and low tide is about two metres. So the fact that the average sea level is now 30 centimetres higher than it was 100 years ago is, is not visible to the untrained eye. It requires precise measurement and anal analysing the data over a very long period. And that's why we have to trust the science rather than our everyday experience because our everyday experience can't analyse to the precision of uh, showing that those trends are actually happening and demand a response. So is that the ultimate challenge? Is the ultimate challenge somehow or another to convince people who are thus far unconvinced that these phenomena actually are unbelievably serious? That's right. And uh, what the IPCC report does is look at a range of future scenarios, and they range from the bad to the appalling. I mean, basically, uh, even the most optimistic scenario in which there is concerted global action starting yesterday uh, still shows things getting worse for at least 50 years because of the long time lags in the system. And the 
the worst scenarios in which, as a global civilization, we fail to respond uh, are absolutely catastrophic for the future of civilization. Uh, food production is uh, appallingly disrupted, for example, or, and uh, areas where hundreds of millions of people now live uh, below sea level. So I remember being on a panel with Barry Jones when he was science minister in 1988, and the science then was a lot less certain, and he was asked how decision-makers should respond. And he said, a prudent decision-maker always thinks about the consequences of getting it wrong. And he said, if the climate scientists are wrong and we listen to them, the worst that could happen is, is that we use cleaner but more expensive energy. And he said that might not be economically optimal, but it wouldn't be a serious problem. On the other hand, he said, if the climate scientists are right and we don't listen to them, the worst that could happen is the collapse of civilization. And he said, uh, even if I thought there were only a 5% chance the scientists were right, I think we should be listening to them and taking, at the very least, the cost-effective actions. And uh, that was the whole point of the report of the National Framework for Energy Efficiency, that uh, given the changes in technology that have happened since, we could easily reduce our emissions to half of what they are today without any loss in our material comfort or our quality of life, just by using the best available technology and uh, using it efficiently, cutting out waste. Ian, that is a huge uh, issue too, and it's a theme that uh, I would like to return to with you at some stage uh, or another soon, um, because it's not just a matter of hearing all the bad news. The issue then is, what are we going to do about it, particularly within the context of getting to better together? So let me thank you enormously for, um, for your contribution this morning. It's just awe-inspiring. Thanks very much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will be back soon with a new episode in our podcast, Getting to Better Together. Goodbye. <laughs>